I'm going to take you back to the book of Acts, and we're going to be in chapter 3. And if you haven't been with us for a while, or if this is your first time, we've been working our way through the book of Acts, and we've made it all the way up to chapter 3, where we've been following Peter and John and their involvement in a miracle that took place as they were on their way to the temple for the afternoon prayer, which is about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, as was their custom. And it was then, on their way to prayer, that they encountered a man who was born without the use of his legs. And he had been carried to the beautiful gate where it was his custom to sit and beg all of those who were coming to worship at the temple. Now, some traditions indicate to us that the man had been there for as many as 40 years, but that's tradition, so you can do what you want to do with that. But the fact of the matter is that it was his habit to come and sit at this gate where he would beg of those who were on their way into the temple. But it struck me as I was preparing for our time together this morning that it was God's plan from eternity past. It was God's plan from the very time that he formed the foundations of the world that on this particular afternoon, for whatever reason, on this particular afternoon, God would intervene in this man's life and he would be changed forever. Do you know that's sometimes how it works in God's economy? Maybe at a time that you least expect it, God can use whatever events he chooses and he sometimes intervenes and completely changes the life of man. And that's what he would do here today. The book of Acts tells us that as Peter and John approached, they made their way to the beautiful gate and there they encountered the man who was sitting there begging. The man, as you might expect, looked up at Peter and John and he asked them for some spare change, just whatever they could give him. And Peter responded by saying in verse 6, And you know this well, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And at that, the man's legs were instantly made new. These legs that had never taken a step, shriveled and brittle, were instantly made new. The man stood up, he ran, He jumped, and it was as if he had been walking his entire life. In just one instant, his whole life would be changed. And because of that, because so many people had seen him for years sitting at the gate begging as they came up to the temple every day to pray, because of that and because of the miracle, there was this instant commotion that took over the city of Jerusalem. And in the very short distance from the beautiful gate to Solomon's porch or the or the portico of Solomon, whatever you want to call it, thousands of people had taken notice and they had begun to gather. So now by the time the disciples make it to Solomon's porch with this once, this formerly lame man hanging on to them, running around, jumping, you can imagine he might be screaming and doing all kinds of things. As they make their way there, now thousands of people are beginning to gather. They are flocking to see what is going on. And just as it was with the miracle of the wind and the fire and the languages in Acts chapter 2, God uses this gathering of thousands of people to inspire Peter to preach a quality message to a group of people who had gathered. Thousands of people are there. And last week, we began to consider the first portion of that message, and this week we're going to complete our thoughts on that. So I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 3. But last week we did notice in verses 11 through 16, chapter 3, that in his preaching... 
Peter did not withhold the truth of the sin of the Jews. Do you remember that? He did not withhold the truth of the Jews' sin. Rather, what he did was he confronted them with their sin. And he said, look, the reality is you've got sin in your life and you have to deal with it. And friends, that is the very beginning of godly preaching. We have to come to the place where we understand that there is sin in our lives and the godly preacher is not afraid to lovingly bring that to your attention and say, look, sin is the problem in your lives. It is the root problem in your lives and you must deal with it. That's where godly preaching begins. And that's exactly what Peter did. He didn't excuse their sin. He said, look, it's real and we need to talk about it. We need to get it out because if we don't, we're never going to deal with it. So what was it that was the sin of the Jews? What was the real problem? Well, it was the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. And friends, I want you to know that that is the ultimate sin. That is the real problem with the world. It is the rejection of Jesus Christ. You see, the problem that the Jews had is the same problem that we have today, isn't it? It was the exact same problem that we have today. And let me just explain to you what I mean by that, if I may. If you think about it, and maybe you have done this in your life in the past, but man has this tendency, as is the tendency also with all of the false religious systems that man contrives in his own mind, there is a tendency toward self-righteousness. Did you catch that? I want you to hang on to this. It's very important. There is this tendency towards self-righteousness. And we've spoken about it many of times before. Now think about it for a minute. What happens when you ask an unsaved friend? What happens when you ask somebody in your workplace, do you think you're going to heaven? And what do they say? Always, yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm going to heaven. Well, why do you think you're going to heaven? Do you know what the answer is going to be? It's almost always, well, I think my good outweighs my bad. I always try to be a good person. I always try to do the right things. Well, what do you mean? Well, I've given to the poor. I mean, sometimes I'll see a guy who's sitting there begging on the corner and I, you know, I take out my spare change and I let him have it. I I give to the poor. I do good things. I've been baptized. I've been confirmed. I've been through this class. I've been through that class, you see, the message that they're trying to give to you is that their right standing before God is all about the things that they've done. It's all about how good they have been. It's all about how often they have helped the unfortunate. It's all about the ceremonies that they have performed. So their righteousness, in other words, friends, listen to this, depends on themselves. Their righteousness depends on the things that they are able to accomplish in this world. You see, it's a matter of their behavior. It's a matter of their deeds. It's a matter of their service. I want you to think about that. It's exactly the same way for the Jews. And it hasn't changed over the thousands of years since Christ died. It hasn't changed. The Jews had come to the place where they no longer embraced the truth of Habakkuk 2.4. And you know what it says in Habakkuk 2.4? Even before the birth of Christ in the Old Testament, the prophet said, the righteous will live by what? By his faith. The righteous will live by his faith. seems that they had forgotten what their own scripture had said. It seems that they had forgotten what their own scripture had said about their great father Abraham in Genesis 15. It said that Abraham believed the Lord and that was counted to him as righteousness. 
Because Abraham believed that was what made him righteous. It wasn't his deeds that made him righteous. It was Abraham's faith that made him righteous. You know, Abraham had done some things that were kind of dumb. He had made some pretty big mistakes in his life. But it wasn't the things that he had done that made him right before God. It was his faith that made him right before God. And that's the direction that Israel had gone. They had gotten away from this thing where they understood that it was their faith that makes them right before God. And they had decided that it was God's will for them to be righteous by being good. Do you see? That's why they went to the temple to pray three times a day. It wasn't because the law required that. It was because they wanted to be as good as they possibly could. You see, they thought if they could be good more often than they're bad, that the scales would tip a little bit, you see. If they could get more check marks in the good column, then God would put in the bad column that everything would be okay. Friends, isn't that how it happens today? I think that's what people will tell you today. I'm sure of it. You just got to do the best you can to please God. Do the very best you can to be good. You know, at the end of the day, God will be pleased with you. So what do you do? Well, you go to church. You do that. You know, you, you give money whenever you can. You read your Bible. You got to do that. That's good. And put a check in the, the good column. And, <laughs> and every time you're tempted to shoot the neighbor's cat with your airsoft rifle, you don't do that. And what happens is God puts another check in the good column for you, right? Isn't that how it works? That's a good deed. I wanted to shoot that dumb cat, but I decided. You know. And if you do those things, God will be happy with you, right? I think that's what many people think. And I think that it's as if God approves of your legalism. That's what we're saying. We're saying that God approves of my own efforts. Just be good. Be the best you can, and you generate your own righteousness, you see? And that's what the Jew thought about God's will. That is what the Jewish religion had devolved to. They had thought, well, we'll just be as good as we can. And that's how their thought went about God's will by the time Peter preached at Solomon's portico that day. That's where they were. And the religious leaders, the men known as the Pharisees, they were in charge of the whole system, you see? And they wanted to make sure these Pharisees did. They wanted to make sure that they were able to keep this whole system together because that was their job. That was their livelihood. And so they had this work system in place. And they thought if they could just maintain this work system, everything would be fine. In fact, the Pharisees loved their work system so much and they loved the good deeds so much and they loved being in charge of the system so much that they had designed some of their own laws that they would add to God's righteous laws. I always love looking into this and finding some of the laws that they had created to add to God's righteous laws. You know, it was a terrible sin in their mind to violate the Sabbath. You couldn't gargle if you had a sore throat on the Sabbath because that's work. So if you have a sore throat, what you do is you take a drink of vinegar and you just swallow right away. You don't want to swish it around in your mouth because that's work. It's violating the Sabbath. If you were hungry, you might be encouraged to know It's okay to eat an egg that's been laid on the Sabbath as long as you intend to kill the chicken that laid the egg on the Sabbath for violating the Sabbath. You see? How foolish. And there are many more. I always get a kick out of of, of reading those and looking into them. But the point is this. They had gotten to the point where they loved good works so much that the Bible didn't provide enough of them for them and they had to create their own. They had to keep adding. They had to add to the system. Isn't that what God wants after all? Doesn't God just want you to be as good as you can? Friends, I want you to know they had gotten it wrong. 
They were wrong about that. They misunderstood the Scripture. And you know that Jesus told them as much? He confronted them about this really often, and they hated Him for it. Do you remember what He said on the Sermon on the Mount? He said, in effect, you cannot please God by keeping His law. Do you know why? Because you can't perfectly keep His law. You're unable to keep His law, so there's no way that you will ever please God by trying to keep His law. You just can't do it. Sure, maybe you have never violated the law that says thou shalt not commit adultery. Certainly you have never done that. But Jesus said the problem is, if you've looked at a woman and had lust in your heart as you've gazed at her, you've already violated the command and you just don't even realize it. You've never gone out and murdered. The law says, thou shalt not murder. You haven't done that, obviously. Jesus says, but still, you're guilty because you walk around with hatred and resentment in your heart toward other people. You might as well have killed him because you've already done it in your heart. For that reason, it is impossible for you to keep the full law of God. And so they had gotten it wrong, and they had gotten off track, and they thought that their relationship with God was all about their religious activity. Now, if you start with that, you can begin to understand why they had also gotten it all wrong about Jesus Christ, can't you? You see, they had, in their own minds, they had it right. And so because they had their views on righteousness wrong, they didn't understand their need for a Savior. Why would they need a Savior? They were righteous. You remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, all of these laws I've kept, I'm faultless. I've gotten them all right. So what's wrong? I've kept all of the laws, but he knew, nagging deeply in his heart, there was this sense that he still wasn't right with God. He didn't know that he needed a Savior. I hope that those of you who were here last week will remember that the Jews were looking for a Savior who they thought would save them politically. That was the Savior they thought they needed. They needed a Savior who would liberate them from Roman rule. They needed a Savior who would establish a kingdom that would last forever. And I want you to know, once again, that the Word does teach that that's going to happen. And in the future, it is going to happen. But... First, and what they missed was that there was this humble and lowly servant who was coming to save them from their sins. That was the first thing, and they missed it. And the Word taught. The prophets spoke hundreds of years before that when that Messiah, when that Savior showed up, they would reject Him. And that's exactly what happened. You see, His coming as that humble Savior was surrounded by so many miracles as proof. There was no way for people to deny that he was from God. They openly confessed it. But ultimately, when they had the choice, and Pilate stood before them, and he said, I want you to choose either the giver of life, Jehovah saves, or I want you to choose Barabbas, taker of life, a murderer. Who did they choose? They chose Barabbas, didn't they? They made the wrong choice. And in doing that, they rejected the Savior of life. But I wonder, if they had known that Jesus was their Messiah, do you think they would have rejected Him? If they had known that He was the Messiah, do you think they still would have rejected Him? I don't think so. See, somehow, in spite of all the evidence, in spite of all the miracles, they hadn't understood what it was they were doing when they rejected Him. They didn't get it. 
And I want you to know, and I'm thankful for this, but there's a certain mercy that is extended by God to those who commit offenses unaware that they're committing an offense. Did you know that? Aren't you glad for the grace and the mercy of God? See, the Old Testament law, and even civil law today, you know this, makes a distinction between crimes which are committed ignorantly and crimes that are committed with premeditation, forethought, and malice, don't they? I mean, in the Old Testament it wasn't any different. God made provision for someone who had committed a sin ignorantly to pay a lower price than the one who had done it purposefully and with malice and intent in his heart. But listen, whether the sin was committed in ignorance or with forethought and malice, the price still has to be paid. Do you see? You don't get to just walk away. There's still a price to be paid. I want to take you to verse 17 now. And this is what Peter says. And Peter says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, and so did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, that Christ would suffer, this He fulfilled. Do you see that? Peter says, look, guys, I understand that you did it out of ignorance. And even though you are guilty of rejecting the Messiah, it was out of ignorance. It was a lack of knowledge. It was a lack of understanding that led you to commit this absolutely terrible sin. And friends, it's important to know that God was not surprised that they would still reject Christ. Ignorant or not, God knew what they were going to do. Peter told him in verse 18 that God's plan was never changed. God's plan was never thwarted because of their spiritual leader's lack of knowledge or because of their lack of understanding. Even despite your own ignorance, God was able to accomplish His purpose. In fact, He planned for your ignorance. That's what Peter was saying. But you're still responsible. Even though you're ignorant, you're responsible. Even though you acted foolishly, Without knowledge, even though God was able to use your ignorance to His divine purpose, you are still responsible. Friends, this is such an important concept for us to understand. And I often think about the people who are born into families. Have you ever thought about this? I think about people who are born into families where certain sins are just commonplace. I mean, what chance does that child have? He's born into a family where a particular sin is commonplace. And maybe that sin is just a part of the family culture. So how is it that God can hold someone who has grown up with parents who are living in blatant opposition to the principles of Scripture accountable for his action? How can he do that? Have you ever considered that? I mean, that's all they know. They've never seen anything any other way. I often think about people who are born into families who are trapped in false religious systems. Have you ever considered that? I mean, they were born into this false religious system. How in the world can we expect them to believe what's right about Christ when from the very infancy they've been taught wrong things? How can we hold them accountable for that? And I think these are great illustrations of people who are born into acting in ignorance. The world is born into ignorance. But somehow, 
God still manages to sovereignly use these unfortunate circumstances. He manages to use all of these terrible things for His divine purpose. Because neither the ignorance of man nor the sovereignty of God will excuse man's bad choice. Do you see? Your choice will never be excused away. Your sin is never excused away because of ignorance or because of God's sovereignty. There is still a price that has to be paid. That's what the Bible teaches. So what do we do? I want to take you to verse 19 and I want you to see. This is what he says. Peter says, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. I want to spend just a few minutes, if I could, on verse 19 here. There's a very important theological term here that I know that you've heard many times before, but I want to make sure that when you leave today, you walk away with a really solid understanding of the word, and it's the word that's translated here as repent. Now, all through history, the faithful preacher, the faithful spokesman of God has called sinners to repent, hasn't he? I mean, you know many of the scriptures in the Old Testament. And in fact, in the book of Ezekiel, the message is repent and turn away from your idols. If you would go to the book of Second Kings, you would find the command is repent and keep my commands. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 5 that he came to do what? Call sinners to repentance. He came to call sinners to repentance. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came, Peter stood up and he said, repent. And here he is again in chapter 3 saying, repent that your sins may be blotted out. So this is a very, very important term. And it's really important that we understand that without repentance, friends, there is no forgiveness of sins. Do you see? I want you to get that. Without repentance, there can be no forgiveness of sins. It's the only way you must repent. Otherwise, you will never be free from sin. And so that is the message of every faithful preacher throughout the history of the world. It's very important that we understand that you can't be saved if you don't repent. So what does it mean? How am I supposed to do it if I don't know what it means? Well, it's from the Greek word metanoeo. The noun form is metanoia. And I want you to understand what it means. It means to reconsider. It means to reconsider. Stay with me. It means to think differently. To reconsider. To think differently. It's a changing of your mind. It's to change your mind. It's an about face in your thinking. It's to completely change your thought or your mind about something and turn 180 degrees and go the complete opposite direction. It is a complete changing of mind. Jesus illustrates this with a parable. I love this parable. It's in Matthew 21. And uh, any of you who have teenage kids will be able to sympathize with the guy in this parable. Take a look at this. Beginning in verse 18, Jesus said, A man had two sons. And he went to the first and he said, son, go and, and we'll just pause here. He says, son, go and, and parents, you can just like fill in the blank with whatever you want, okay? I mean, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's go and clean your room, whatever chore you like best. Go and shovel the snow, whatever. So let's start over. I don't know why I had to throw that in there, but I did. Son, go and work in the vineyard. That was the chore. Go and work in the vineyard today. And his son answered and said, I will not. But afterward... He changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son. The father went to the second son. And he said to that son the same thing. And the son answered, 
I go, sir, but he did not go. Now which of the two did the will of the Father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. What a strange way for Jesus to finish that parable. He was just talking about two sons, and the very next thing you know, he concludes it by saying, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to heaven before you. What would cause him to say that? Isn't that a weird finish to that story? So which one of those boys did the will of their father? Which one? Was it the one who gave his dad lip service? Maybe it wasn't lip service. In fact, maybe when when the boy said to his dad, Dad, yeah, I'll, I'll go to the vineyard. I'll do the work. Maybe the son truly intended to go that day. Maybe it was it never crossed his mind that he wouldn't go, but he got all wrapped up in Fortnite or whatever else they were doing, and he decided that he couldn't make it out. And the next thing you know, it's dark, and who's going to go work in the vineyard at night? And so now the boy has totally missed his opportunity to do the will of God. Who knows? But the bottom line is he said, Dad, I'm going, and then what happened? He didn't do it. Well, but then there was another one. And this one said, no way, Dad. I'm not doing that. I hate the vineyard. I'm not going out there. I'm never going to be a farmer, and you can't make me. I'm not going. And if you have teenagers, you have that conversation from time to time when you ask them to do something, don't you? Look at all the smiles. I can see smiles even through your masks out here with that one. But it's true. And that's what that boy did. But he had some time to think about it. And you know what he did? He changed his mind. That's what the Word teaches. How do I know that that boy changed his mind? How can we know that? Because he went to the field. He went out to the vineyard, didn't he? And that's how we know that he was genuine in his change of mind because he did the opposite of what he said. He said, I'm not going to go. And he thought about it. He considered it. He changed his mind. And then he went out to the vineyard. And that was the proof that his mind change was genuine. And then Jesus says that the dregs, the people you despise, The prostitutes, the tax collectors, they're going to heaven before you, religious people. Just know that. They're going to heaven before you are. Well, why was that important for him to say? What is the point in him bringing that up? Here's the thing. The religious people confessed, yes, God, I'll do your will. I'll do what you want. I'll serve you. I'll do what's right. I'll honor you. I'll do anything you want to honor you, Father. I'll do it, right? And maybe even in front of other people, they're actually doing it. Maybe the other people around them think, yeah, that that guy, he's he's doing what God wants. I mean, I see him at church every Sunday. He always stands there, you know, when the bucket comes by, and he he licks his thumb, he goes... So I know he's doing God's will. But the truth is, as much lip service as he gives to God, in his heart, he's far away. Do you see? He's far away. In his heart, he's still committing adultery with every woman that walks down the street. In his heart, he's still killing all the people at work because he despises them and he hates them. But in front of you and me, he looks good. Yeah, Dad, I'll do it. I'll take care of it for you. And then there are, on the other hand, the tax collectors and the prostitutes who said, as I once did, by the way, there is no way I'm going to serve God. 
It's the way I'm doing it. I know that if I serve God, He's going to want me to plant a church somewhere. I'm not doing that. That's not the life for me. I don't need to serve your God. That's not the life for me. You can go ahead and do it. You go on out to the vineyard, but I'm not up with that jam. I'm not doing that. But at some point, God used an event in just normal everyday life to reach in and intervene and say, listen to me, it's time for you to turn around. And the prostitute and the tax collector did it And they went out to the field and they served their dad with a smile on their face. So you tell me, which one is doing the will of the Father? The prostitute who said, I'll never go and changed her mind and did? Or the religious guy who said, oh yeah, I'm all over it. I got you, Dad. Don't worry about it. I got you covered. And never shows up. That's the message, you see. That's the point of the parable. And I think It's a great illustration of what it means to repent. That's what it means to change your mind. And it's those people who repent. It's those people who change their mind. Those are the ones who make it to heaven, not the religious people. It is those who have repented that make it to heaven. They have turned away from the sin of ignoring God. They have turned away from the sin of having wrong thoughts and ideas of God. They have turned away from that sin. They have turned toward God. And friends, hear me, that's what the religious people need to do. But it's become so difficult because they are so convinced that they have already gotten it right that they don't need to repent. But I want you to know that they need to turn away from their system of self-righteousness. And they need to turn toward God. God wants repentance. Do you understand? You cannot be saved if you do not repent. It's God's plan for man to repent. Paul said in Acts 17, verse 30, he said, the times of ignorance God overlooked. And aren't you glad that he did? He overlooked the times of ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to do what? To repent. You have to repent. You have to turn. You have to change your mind because there is a fixed day on which he's going to judge the world. Listen, friends, he is patient with our ignorance. He is patient with our, with our lack of knowledge. But ultimately, it's his plan that everyone still repent. And those who do, just like the boy who said, I'm not going out to the field dead, but changed his mind and went out there. Those who are like the prostitute and the tax collector who repent, they find forgiveness. But those who don't, whether they're religious or whether they're the dregs of society, if they refuse to repent, the Bible teaches that there is a day of judgment and they will face it no matter how religious they think they are. But they were going to church. I mean, seriously, they were there every week, sometimes three times a day. They were giving their money. They were reading their Bibles. What could the religious people possibly have needed to repent for? There are two things that they needed to repent for. And the first one was that they had a wrong understanding of God and they had a wrong understanding of His will. And because their understanding was wrong, these religious leaders, because they didn't understand, do you know that they were teaching people wrong things? And they were raising up ignorant people behind them? They were teaching foolish things. They were teaching things like you can't eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath unless you kill the chicken. And people were gobbling that up and they were eating it and they were believing that. And so they were creating new generations of ignorant people. 
They were causing the entire nation to be ignorant. See, their understanding was that God wanted them to earn His favor with their righteous behavior. You know that. They had gone so far. They had gone so far. And God says, turn around. You are going the wrong way. Do you see? You are going the wrong way, He says. You need to change your direction. You need to change and turn from your understanding of grace by works to the understanding of grace that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the only way you're going to get there. That's what He's telling them. Friends, listen. If you have grown up in a works-driven system, if you have been trying to earn God's favor by trying to do more good than bad, if that's what you're doing, you need to turn around. You're going the wrong way. It's not how it works. And I want you to deal with that this morning. And that's exactly what they were doing. The only way that you're going to please God is to change your heart, is to change your mind, and to place your faith in Jesus Christ. you understand? The problem for the Jews was, Not only did they need to change their mind, but they needed to change their mind about Jesus Christ. That was their problem. They needed to turn from the wrong understanding about Jesus Christ. They had a bad understanding of who He was, and because of that, there was no way that they could ever turn toward Him. They had already made up their minds that He was out of His mind. They had already decided for themselves that this guy was crazy, so there was no way that they could look to Him to be saved. They thought he was a fraud. They would rather have had a murderer than this guy. And they had to turn away from their understanding of Jesus Christ. And they had to go the other way completely. Friends, listen, when we repent and we turn from self-rule, when we turn from self-righteousness, when we turn from this commitment to do whatever makes us feel best, when we turn from a wrong understanding of Jesus Christ, to the understanding that only by faith in Him, the Son of God, are we saved, at that point, Peter tells us, your sins are just blotted right out. They're completely gone. They're wiped away as if they'd never existed. Your guilt, your sin, it's all completely gone. How nice is that? What a relief. In verse 20, Peter says we do that, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So friends, not only does repentance bring the blessing of right standing before God, it also brings this blessing of refreshing. Do you understand that? I think this world is in a place where it needs refreshing. I think there are many of you who are sitting here this morning, and you can say, I need a refreshing. This has been a terrible year. You can't even begin to understand, Scott, how it's been in my life. May I just ask you to consider the possibility that Jesus Christ is using and God is using normal circumstances in your life to meet you right where you are and say, listen to me, you are going the wrong way. Turn around. Is it possible? Is it possible that that's what he's saying? Is it possible that that's the reason you have come here this morning is so that you could hear the message from God that says, you are going the wrong way. You need to stop and you need to turn around right now. Experience the refreshing and the blessing that comes from faith in Jesus Christ. And I think in particular here, Peter's talking about the messianic refreshing of the time of the second coming of Christ. And just for a second, I might help you to understand what that is. So it's when Christ comes back to earth to establish His physical kingdom. And in Isaiah chapter 11, 
the prophet tells us about the time of refreshing or the messianic return, and he says about his kingdom that the whole earth, listen to this, will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you imagine everyone having a knowledge of the Lord? As the waters cover the sea, they'll have a right understanding of God. They'll have a right understanding of Jesus Christ. When that happens, the word tells us that the lion will lie down with a lamb. You've heard that, right? The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. There'll be peace. And if you look at chapter 35, you'll see that the deserts bloom like a rose. You see that when the kingdom comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will hear. The legs of the lame will be walking just like they did in Acts chapter 3. The curse of sin will be reversed and there will be this refreshing, there will be this water that refreshes the parched and dry land, living water for the parched and dry and thirsty heart, do you see? No one will be oppressed anymore. No more injustice. Perfect justice for everyone. No illness. Complete joy. No poverty. No underprivileged. Prosperity everywhere. That's what the kingdom of Christ looks like. And that's what the Jews were longing for. And I think that's probably what we're all longing for. That's the kingdom. And that's going to be coming. But this is what the message to them was that day, friends, as we wrap it up this morning. Listen, we all want that time of refreshing. I'm convinced that you all want that time of refreshing. And I think it's possible that God has used this year to remind you of how badly you need to be refreshed. But you can't have it unless you repent. You see? You'll never get there unless you change your mind. You'll never get there unless you change your thinking about the king. You can't enter the kingdom. But if you do, then you can have the kingdom. You you have to turn your thinking about God. You have to turn your thinking and change your mind about Jesus Christ. How long will you wait? How many more 2020s will you have to go through? How many more times will God try to use circumstance after circumstance to get your attention? How many more times will He try to intervene before you change your mind? If you're here this morning and you know that the Lord has graciously given you opportunity after opportunity to change your mind and to turn toward Him, and yet you have refused, I want to encourage you to just do it this morning. Why wait? Be refreshed. Repent and be made new. Maybe you're the son of the Matthew 21 parable that says, yeah, Dad, I'll I'll go out to the field and work for you. Yeah, I'll serve you. I'll honor you. And you know that even though everybody thinks you're religious, you've never gone into the field. You know that you haven't. You can fool your family. You can fool me. That's easy enough. But you're not fooling God. He knows that you told him, yeah, Dad, I'll go into the field and I'll work. And he knows that when no one else is looking, your heart is not right before God. You need to turn around before it's too late. You have to change your mind. Friends, it doesn't matter if you've been born into a place where you never really heard the Word of God talk to you, or you're, you're in a place where you've been religious your whole life, you're not going to be refreshed until you reach a point of true repentance. Will you change your minds this morning? Can I make one last appeal to you? Change your mind this morning. 
turn and go the other way before it's too late. Father, I thank you so much for your great kindness that leads so many to repentance. I thank you even for godly sorrow, which your word teaches leads us to repentance. And I ask this morning, Lord, for those who are thinking wrong things about you, for those who are thinking wrong things about Jesus Christ, that you will change their lives and that you will give them the boldness this morning to turn around and to repent. I ask that you will change their minds, that they will turn toward you. And I ask God that as we turn toward you, that you will freshen our hearts, that you will freshen our minds, that our lives will be made new, and that there will be this new joy and this new peace and this new happiness that we just can't explain. Take away sorrow and replace it with joy. Where there's separation from you, I ask that there would be a close friendship. In Christ's name.